Oh, Lord God, your word is so wonderful and so rich. God, I pray that I might do justice to it. God, it is a challenging book, but God, I pray that I might be able to bless your people and ultimately point to Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, sisters, do you guys ever get discouraged? Do you ever see the things that are going on in this world, the suffering, the hardship, and get downcast, the blues, sad? When we look at the state of this world, there's so much going wrong. And if we look at our nation, we can easily become very discouraged. But the great thing is, we have the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is written to give hope and encouragement to a generation going through suffering by reminding them that our God is a God that makes promises and he keeps them. Our God is a God that makes promises and keeps them. Zechariah was written during the time after the nation of Israel had returned back from their captivity in Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah give some of the larger background, but after 70 years in captivity, a small group of Jewish people returned back to Israel and start re-inhabiting it. They are instructed by God to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But this is at a time where they have very little power, they are still under the rule of Babylon, and they do not have much say in how the affairs of their country are, are run. In one sense, they are almost still under captivity but with a little bit extra freedom. And the other nations around them constantly are discouraging them. And the people oftentimes don't follow through on God's commandments. And they start getting discouraged. And they're told to rebuild the temple. And they stop because of fear of their enemies coming and destroying them. Zechariah is written during a time of immense hardship for the people they're not sure if they can even rebuild the temple or if they want to. But Zechariah is meant to encourage the people. The book begins with a call to repentance. Now, Zechariah is one of the, actually is the largest of the minor prophets. It is 14 chapters long and is broken up into two main sections. The first is section from chapter 1 till chapter 8. And they have eight visions that are all very strange, but are meant to encourage the people. And then chapter 9 through 14, in each one of the chapters, there's a reference to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. And so this book is meant to help us remind us of Jesus the Messiah and what God is doing. So it is meant to encourage us. There are a lot of type and shadows in this book. And a type and a shadow is pointing to a greater reality. So a quick example, Jesus and the temple. The temple is a shadow of Jesus who is the greater temple. The promised land, Israel, is just a shadow of heaven, the ultimate promised land. Zechariah is filled with a lot of types and shadows that are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. So let's begin in chapter 1. And I will be jumping around quite a bit just for the sake of time because there are 14 chapters. So chapter 1, starting in verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? This is a call for them to repent. It makes the point that Judah, Israel, your fathers were punished because of their evil. They didn't listen to the prophet that sent them and asked, where are they? Implying they're dead. They're no longer around. And asked, what about the prophets? They're dead too. They don't live forever. The people that are meant to guide them, they've been passing away too. And so it says, so Israel, what are you going to do? Are you going to obey? Verse 6, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts provided to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Zechariah calls the people to repent, reminding them of the wicked deeds of their fathers. And it seems like good news. They repent. They said they have done wrong. Their fathers were in the wrong. It's a great start to a book that the people are actually willing to repent from the beginning. And then this will circle back around in chapter 7. But all of a sudden, after the people repent, Zechariah has eight visions in one night, back to back. Now these visions, although strange, like most of our dreams are sometimes, again, they are meant to encourage the people. So I'm going to go through each one of the visions, and I'm going to show you how it includes one of God's promises in it. There are eight visions. Let's start with the first one. Chapter 1, verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrrh trees in Glen, and behind him were red, white, and pale horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel talked to me and said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrrh trees answered, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, the Lord, or the angel of the Lord who was standing among the trees, said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is at rest. What this vision is, is four horsemen, they go out into the world and they're patrolling it. And what they find is that the nations, they're at peace. Now this might sound like a good thing, but from the standpoint of the nation of Israel, this is horrible news. They're looking at the nation of Babylon and the Assyrians, and they're looking at all these people that have done them wrong, and they're wondering, oh Lord, why? Why are the other nations at peace while we are suffering? Nations like, they deserve worse. We deserve better. We're God's people. They're God's enemies. Why is there peace? Why is there no mercy shown to, to God's people? Why are the Israelites going through suffering and not the enemies? Why is there no peace? That's what the question is. Verse 14 says, So the angel who talked with me said, Cry out, thus says the Lord, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am extremely angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry for a little, and they further the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort thine and again choose Jerusalem. Although Jerusalem at this time has no walls, 
and no temple, and God isn't showing them mercy, God says, I'm still jealous for you. Even after all the wickedness they have done, God still says he is going to show mercy. That's the first promise of the book. Remember, the main point of Zechariah is to give hope and encouragement to a generation going through suffering by reminding them that our God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. And the first promise is God will show mercy. God promises to show mercy to his people. And this would be a great encouragement to them, to the nation of Israel, who has gone through all this suffering. And God says, I'm still jealous for you. I still love you. And I'm going to show you mercy. And he also deals with the nations in the second vision. So again, this is vision after vision. So we go immediately from vision one, Zechariah immediately has the second vision. And behold, I lifted up my eyes, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are, the com- what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the four horns that scattered Judah. And so no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nation who lifted up the horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. God promises mercy, and then God promises justice to his enemies. These four horns most likely refer to the nation that had been causing Israel all the suffering. Egypt, the Assyrians, Babylonian, at this point the Persians too. And God says, those nations that are my enemies, that have destroyed my people, I'm going to bring to destruction. They scattered the Israelites, I will scatter them. So God promised mercy to his people, and he promised justice to his enemies. The next vision. Chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Starting in verse 1, I'm sorry. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is width and what is length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And he said, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be her wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. He goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join together to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The picture is an angel comes, and he has a measuring line. Just think of, he has a big tape measure, and he's going to measure Jerusalem. And as he's doing so, all of a sudden, he starts pointing out that it's going to be inhabited again. And this comes during the time where most of Jerusalem is vacant. The Babylonians have already come, destroyed most of Jerusalem, including the temple, and have scattered the people and took many of the people to be captives only leaving a few people to just tend to the land. And in this promise, God says, Jerusalem is going to be inhabited again. It's going to be full. And so God says it will be inhabited, but he says it's not going to need walls anymore. And the importance of walls during this time 
was a protection against enemies. It's meant to give security to the people inside. Just imagine you living in your house, but you have no windows or no doors at all. How well would you sleep at night knowing that anyone could just walk into your house? That's the picture that Jerusalem is in. At any moment, their enemies can come and destroy them. In fact, in Nehemiah, when they're actually rebuilding the walls, they're so afraid that the nations are going to attack them that in one hand they have a hammer, in the other they have a sword because their enemies are ready to attack. But in this one, he says they don't need any walls because God will protect them. God will be a wall of fire. And how great is that promise that God's going to re-inhabit Jerusalem? But there's actually a greater promise in that vision. Look again at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. God promises to dwell with his people. So God has promised mercy, judgment to his enemies. And this is one of the greatest promises that we can have. God will dwell with his people. We should immediately be thinking about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it talks about God who came and dwelt with his people. He came and the word is, tabernacled or he was with his people dwelling and this is foreshadowing the God who will come and be with his people and this will cause great rejoicing people will sing they will rejoice but it's not just Jerusalem that's going to be rejoicing in this case because it goes on and says in verse 11 and many nations shall join together to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in their midst and you shall know that I am the Lord of hosts has sent you. Brothers, sisters, we are that promise. God promises the Gentile nations. That's us. God has come and dwelt with his people through Jesus Christ and then has called a group of people that are not Jewish. As far as I know, there's not a single Jewish people here. But we are the people that God has chosen to save. We are the nations that have come and joined the Lord. God has blessed us through this book we get to see how kind God is that thousands of years ago God foretold about the nations and we are that living promise that has come forth but let's look to the great Jesus Christ who has come and dwelt with his people again these visions they're nothing but encouraging let's move on to the next vision the fourth vision. Chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him in garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This vision is a picture of Satan who goes to the high priest of the time that was named Joshua, and he starts accusing him of all his sins. And the thing was, he was right. 
Satan, the accuser, he points out the sin of the priest and the people. And he's telling the truth. That priest is dirty. It says that he was clothed with filthy garments. His sin. He's covered in sin. But then this is where the kindness of the Lord comes in. The Lord says, go take off those filthy garments. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity or your sin. God promised to one sense deal with Joshua the high priest's sin, to cleanse the priest, but this goes far deeper than that. This isn't just talking about a priest that was cleaned. This is talking about the people of God that were cleaned, which is us. God has taken away our iniquity. We at one point were stained with sin. We were clothed in iniquity. But God has taken away our sin-stained clothes and now has given us clean garments. As white as snow, because we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. God promised to cleanse our sins. And this also points forward to Jesus, because it goes on to say, in chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who, who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This branch just refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This does point to the fact that Jesus is going to cleanse our sin. He is going to take upon himself the filthy garments that we wear, our sin-stained lives. He takes upon himself and cleanses us by giving us his righteousness, his clean robes. What a blessing it is to realize that our sins are forgiven, that we are cleansed, brothers and sisters, rejoice in these visions. They are meant to encourage us. Although Satan accuses us, and although he is right about his accusations against us, we are cleansed. We are set free from our sins through Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the next vision. Chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips to the right of the bowl and to the other side. I'm sorry, I skipped a line. Um, Let me reread some of that. I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. So what, he, what Zachariah is seeing is there are two olive trees, and the olive trees are filtering to this lampstand, and it's providing the oil to burn it. And what this is a picture of is the leaders, the two leaders that are in Jerusalem at the time. And it says these two leaders are filtering or causing to burn the incense of the candle. It's a pointing out that there are two leaders that God is using. So look at verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to the Rezebel. Now he was the governor of Israel at that time. Not by my might, nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You have two leaders in this picture that are filtering into an olive or a lampstand. What this is pointing out, that God is using these two leaders to bless his nation. 
But it's interesting because it says how he blesses this nation. It says that if not by their might, if not by their power, but it says it is by my spirit. So God raises up two leaders and then he blesses them with his Holy Spirit. We should immediately be thinking of Pentecost where there are flaming tongues of the people and they speak in tongues and everyone is then given the Holy Spirit. God promises to empower us by his spirit. We don't need to do it by our might. We don't need to do it by our power, but we can do it by the power of God's spirit. So when God raises up leaders to do a task, when God raises up his people, he doesn't lead them to their own devices. He gives them his strength and his power for his glory and for his name's sake. Let's move on to the next vision. Chapter 5. Again, I lifted up my eyes and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleared out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what the other side is. This is the picture of in the new Jerusalem, God's word will go out and it will punish evildoers. It will punish the liars and the thieves. God promises to deal with the liars and the thief in this vision. The next vision, chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said, Lift up your eyes and see what is going on. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is iniquity in all the land. And behold, there was a cover that was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust her down with a weight on his opening. And then these two women grab the basket and they take it on to Babylon. This is saying that God removes the iniquity and the evil that is in the land and carries it away. It's originally a picture of Israel and their sin, and God takes the sin out of the land and takes it to Babylon. But the greater reality is God will take away our sin and he will take it away from us. God promises to deal with the evil that is in us and our land. The last vision. Chapter 6. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, and the second had black horses, and the third white, and the fourth dipped horses, and all were strong. And then I answered, and the Lord said to who talked with me, said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chairs with the black horse go towards the north, and the white ones go after them, and the great ones go towards the south. And then the strong ones come out, and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said to me, Go and patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And he cried and said to me, Behold, those who go to the north have set my spirit at rest in the north country. There's all these horses, just like the first vision. But it says something different this time. It says now that they patrolled the earth and then God's spirit was at rest. The reason God's spirit is at rest is because he has dealt with the evil to the north, which is referring to Babylon. God promises to deal with evil nations. And that's the last of the visions. Now these visions, although strange, somewhat confusing, are only meant to encourage us. Zechariah was written to a nation going through suffering to encourage them 
by reminding them that God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. And so in these visions, God promised them mercy. He promised justice to the enemies. He promised to dwell with his people and to gather the Gentiles. He promised to cleanse our sin, to empower us by the Holy Spirit, to deal with the liars and the thieves, to deal with the evil of our hearts and the evil in the land. And he promised to deal with the evil nations. These visions are just meant to be promises that encourage us. And what a blessing they are. And so after this, Zechariah wakes and is immediately told to go get the high priest. And he says, go get the high priest and gather a crown with silver and, gro- and gold and set the crown on his head. And so Zechariah gathers the crown, he puts it on the high priest's head, in chapter 6, verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord, behold the man whose name is the branch. So this high priest at the time, he has no idea that this whole exercise of putting a crown on the priest's head was only meant to point to the branch. This branch is referred first in Isaiah chapter 4, where it talks about the Messiah, who is the branch. And then in Jeremiah, it refers to the branch, who is a descendant of David. And all of a sudden, we start getting these pictures together that this branch, in some cases called the stump, is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be crowned speaking of his priestlyhood, but also the royalty of the crown. And so after all these visions, all they're told is, look forward to the branch. Look forward to the Messiah. Look to him who is the coming king. After these visions in the crown on the king's head, there's about two years that pass in Zechariah. And all of a sudden, it kind of takes a change. Chapter 7 begins two years afterwards. And at this point, the people are encouraged. The land is being inhabited again. They're rebuilding the temple. And the people get so excited. Because for the last 70 years, They have been in mourning. These people would mourn during four months of the year. There are four fasts a year. In the fourth month, they were fasting because the wall of Jerusalem had fallen. In the fifth month, they fasted because that was the month that the temple was destroyed. In the seventh month, they're fasting because of what governor that had died. And in the tenth month, they're fasting because that was the month that King Nebuchadnezzar started his siege on Jerusalem. These last 70 years, they've been discouraged. They've been mourning. They added an extra four fasts throughout the year. And normally the only prescribed fast for them was on the Day of Atonement. But they added four fasts because that's how grief-struck they were. But after these visions and after these two years, they're encouraged. And they come up to Zechariah and they said, Shall I weep and stain in the fifth month, which was the month that the temple was destroyed? And Zechariah answers him, chapter 7, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priest, When you fast and you mourn in the, in the fifth and the seventh month for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you ate and when you drank, did you not do it for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not those the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowlands were inhabited? God asked, why were you fasting to begin with? Your fasting was wrong. He's saying, you were thinking you were doing something good by mourning over the temple, but you weren't mourning because you love God and you love the temple. You were mourning for your own selfish reasons. You were just sad that you were punished. It's the equivalent of a kid who gets caught 
with his hand in the cookie jar, and the kid's only sad because he got caught and is being punished. That's what the people were mourning about. They were punished. They were not mourning over God and their sin against God. And they had and they had been doing this for 70 years. And God says, I don't want your fasting. It was never for me to begin with. God says, what I want is for you to live a righteous life. So in chapter 7, verses 8 through 14, he calls them to live righteous lives. He tells them to show true justice, to show kindness and mercy to one another, to not oppress the widows, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and to let none of the evil practices come in your heart. Because I don't care about your religious practices. I don't care that you've been mourning for 70 years. I want your heart to be right, and I want you to do what is right. And then God goes on to say in chapter 8, although you guys are wicked and evil people, and your nation was destroyed, I'm going to re-inhabit Jerusalem. It's that vision that they had earlier. The third one with the measuring line in Jerusalem being re-inhabited, God says, I'm still going to do that. I'm going to inhabit Jerusalem so much so that you will once again see kids running through the street. Again, there will be old people. At this point, people didn't live very long because of the great suffering. And God says, there's going to be old people who will be sitting out watching the kids play again because I'm going to bless Jerusalem. I'm going to care for them. And it's not going to be like the former days, declares the Lord, but it's going to be a time of blessing. It's going to be such a time of blessing that instead of them mourning during those four months, during the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and tenth, God says this will now be a time of rejoicing. It will be a time of feasting. God's going to turn their mourning into praises. It's going to be such a glorious time that again, the Gentiles will come. God's going to bless Israel that the nations will grab hold of a Jewish robe and say, let me come with you. Let me go to your land because I hear that God dwells with you. Chapter 8 is a message of great hope for the people. And then chapter 9 through 14 start one of the greatest encouragements in the Old Testament. Because chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 all include a prophecy about the Messiah. So in chapter 7 and 8, God promises that I will turn your mourning into feasting. And how does God do that? By the next couple of chapters, God will say, I'm going to send the Messiah. Remember, God is a God who makes promises and he keeps them. And so over the next couple of chapters, God promises a humble king. God then promises a cornerstone. God then promises a good shepherd. God promises to then cleanse the people of their sin. And then God promises living waters and a king over the whole earth. The next chapters each are quoted in the New Testament directly about Jesus Christ. And so we'll spend the last little bit of time hitting each one of those prophecies. In chapter 9, God says that he's going to punish his enemies, the Philistines, the Assyrians. They're going to be punished. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be this king, chapter 9, verse 9, that will come into the town, and the people will be rejoicing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The whole point of this thing about a donkey is for years the nation of Israel has been 
constantly subjugated to war and oppression. They have been attacked. And normally, the kings, such as the Babylonian king, they would ride in on a mighty horse. And the horses were a sign of power and control. That's why the nation of Israel were told, you shall not gather up chariots like the other nations. Because God didn't want them to rely on their own power, but to rely on the power of God. And so Jesus comes riding on a donkey to show his humility. And this should have reminded us of Philippians chapter 2, that although God was God, he didn't count it as something to grasp, but he humbled himself and took the place of a servant. God promises a humble king Let me read Matthew 21. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you and asks what you are doing, say the Lord has need of them and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you on a donkey, humble, and mounted on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. We have a humble king. God promised it, and God fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. God goes on to say in chapter 10, when the nations ask for rain, which is meant to keep them alive with their food, God says, I will send rain, but don't ask your idols anymore for the rain. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies, and they tell false dreams. God says, stop calling upon the idols for rain and prosperity, but instead, Call upon me. For God says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make him like a majesty in speed in battle. For him shall come the cornerstone. And we know this cornerstone is Jesus Christ, because in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus gives the parable of the tenants, where he says that God has a vineyard and he sends, his peop- he sends a person to go gather the fruit and the people kill every single person that comes to gather. Jesus says in the end, have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the Lord's doing. The cornerstone is one of the most important parts of the building. Essentially, it's the first block that is laid and is meant to guide the rest of the building. If you didn't have a perfectly square cornerstone, you wouldn't have four 90-degree corners in your wall. And so it's saying that Jesus is the cornerstone. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that the prophets and the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So God builds his church through the prophets and the apostles, but the foundation, the cornerstone, that is Jesus Christ. So chapter 10 says, I will give a cornerstone, a foundation for everything else to go on. So God's going to deal with their idols. He's going to deal with the false prophets by giving them the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, he goes on to correct the horrible leadership that is in Jerusalem. So we always talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees that would lead away God's people and how these people did not care at all for the people. So in Zechariah chapter 11, Zechariah is told to become a shepherd for a flock that is doomed for destruction. 
So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took the two staff, one named Favor and the other one named Uden, and I tended the sheep. And in one month, I dismissed the three shepherds, and I became impatient with them, and they detested me. And so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with the people. And so it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching with me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but I have not keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. Jesus is talked about here in Matthew chapter 27 when he's betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is the one who is called to be the good shepherd. These shepherds care nothing for their people. In fact, it says in John chapter 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd and who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leads the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them away and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as my father knows me, I know the father and I will lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Those leaders during that time, they didn't care anything for God's people. They would oftentimes put them under burdens. They would tax them. They would take advantage of their people. The leaders in Jerusalem, they didn't care for them. But there is a good shepherd, which is Jesus Christ. And he's a shepherd that actually cares for his sheep so much so that he is willing to lay down his life. And that happens when Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is betrayed and he is led to the cross. It goes on to say in chapter 12, and I will pour out my spirit on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and peace and pleads the mercy so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced. This is quoted in Matthew 26, I'm sorry, 27, verse 7 through 10. When Jesus dies on the cross, it says they looked on him that they pierced. So Jesus is the good shepherd that was betrayed by Judas, who then died on the cross. And then in chapter 13, it gives us the good news of why Jesus had to die on the cross. On that day, there shall be a foundation open for the house of David and his inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin. Jesus was betrayed for our sin. He was pierced for our iniquity so that we may be cleansed, so our sin will be no more. Again, going back to the vision, Jesus will take away our dirty garments and he will make them white as snow through his blood. He was pierced for our sins. This great shepherd is then talked about again in chapter 13. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. A reference to when Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ right before the Mount um, of Gethsemane where Jesus is betrayed and they scatter, again, is another prophecy of Jesus. Prophecy after prophecy comes forth in Zechariah and is only meant to encourage us that the Messiah is coming. The humble king will come. He will punish the wicked nations, but he will also be betrayed, but he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver so that he may be pierced for our sins 
because that's what the good shepherd does. He lays his life down for the sheep. Chapter 14 then goes on to say of the glorious day of Jesus Christ. And on that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem and half them to the eastern sea and half them to the western sea. And it shall be continuous in summer as it is in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one with his name. Oh, brothers and sisters, we look forward to the day where we will be with Jesus, where we will get to see the one that was pierced. But we will not be mourning on that day. We will be rejoicing as we look at his scars because we will see that those scars are what set us free from our sins. He was betrayed for our sins so that we may be set free. Brothers and sisters, Zechariah was written to a nation that was going through great suffering. It was a time of hardship. But what God always does for God's people is he strengthens them and he encourages them by giving them promises. And God keeps his promises. God promised mercy and he showed mercy. God promised that he would give justice to his enemies, and he did give justice. God promised to rebuild Jerusalem, and he did. And he promised to gather the Gentiles, which were here. God promised to cleanse our sin, which he has, and empowered us by the Holy Spirit. God has dealt with the liars and the thieves, and God has promised to deal with the evil in the land, and has promised to deal with the evil nations. And God has promised and has fulfilled by sending a humble king that rode in on a donkey that was the good shepherd that was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, hung on a cross, pierced for our sin, but then was raised again. And he is the one who gives us living waters and there will be a day where we will all look forward to standing in heaven and rejoicing with Jesus Christ, the King of the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, you have given us so many promises. God, may we take hold of your promises and may we be strengthened. God, you are so wonderful. You did not have to give us these promises. God, we are thankful that you have. And God, because of your promises, may we live holy lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.